welcome to episode three of part two of Mercy House University's podcast, Can We Trust the Gospels? My name is Elaine, and I'm here with Austin, Patrick, and Justin. In episode one, Patrick uh, talked about the trial and the death of Jesus. And in episode two, Austin talked about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And today we're going to hear from Justin, who's going to talk about the apparent discrepancies in the resurrection narratives. Oh, guys, I'm so excited about this. Um, So today we are going to pick up where Austin left off. So Austin gave us what has come to be called the minimal facts case for the resurrection, which focuses on just a couple of key facts that the resurrection explains really nicely. But one thing that, that doesn't get talked about so much when one focuses on the minimal facts case for the resurrection is the, all the little details in the resurrection narratives. And today we're going to take a look at those details. Now, as usual, there's so much material that we can't possibly cover everything. So we have to be selective. So here's the approach that I'm going to take. I want to focus on a charge that critics often level against the resurrection narratives in the Gospels. And that is the charge that they are full of little discrepancies or contradictions. This is a claim that you hear all the time. Bart Ehrman, for example, in debates, likes to rattle off a bunch of alleged contradictions in the Gospels. And a lot of his examples are drawn from the narrative of the women discovering the empty tomb. So today we're going to focus in on on those kinds of issues. Along the way, we'll also encounter other little bits of evidence, like uh, undesigned coincidences and things like that, which count in favor of the historical trustworthiness of the Gospels. Okay, so I want to say a word before we look at any specific apparent discrepancies in the narrative about their sort of evidential significance. It is usually assumed by critics who are making a big deal about the fact that there are apparent contradictions in the resurrection narratives that this counts against the historical trustworthiness of the narratives. And the argument goes something like this. Whenever you have two sources disagreeing with each other on some point, at least one of them must be wrong because they're contradicting each other. And so if you have a whole bunch of little disagreements like that, that implies a whole bunch of mistakes. And so critics take the presence of those disagreements to be an indication that the gospel authors are not being careful, or at least in some sense, they're not fully accurate. They're making mistakes. But defenders of the trustworthiness of the gospels have responded to this by pointing out that there's actually a sense in which discrepancies or at least apparent discrepancies in the Gospels are evidence for their historical trustworthiness. Uh, This is a point that's been made by a bunch of people, uh, including Tim and Lydia McGrew and Craig Keener and so forth. And the idea is something like this. You expect there to be little discrepancies or at least apparent discrepancies in reports that are based on independent eyewitness testimony. And you expect that because when testimony is independent, the 
people offering it don't have a chance to, you know, collude with each other and make sure that they're getting all their details straight. You don't have one author copying from another. They're just independently reporting things as they remember them. And when you're working with eyewitness testimony, we all know this. The eyewitnesses sometimes remember things a little bit differently, or they notice things or take different things to be important. Uh, And so they don't always report things in exactly the same way. And often, their reports will have, usually on matters of detail, uh, cases where it looks like they're not agreeing with each other. And now it might turn out, in some cases, and this is another point that's often been made, it might turn out that what looks like a discrepancy at first turns out not to be. But the very fact that there appear to be discrepancies in the Gospels, whether, whether they're actual discrepancies or merely apparent discrepancies that turn out not to be actual ones, that is just the sort of thing that you expect to find in independent eyewitness testimony. So it's actually evidence that the resurrection accounts are that kind of uh, literature, that, they are, that they're based on that kind of source. And that counts in their favor. What would you say to someone who said this? Well, you say that scripture is inspired, and that is supposed to mean something like that God is the author of scripture. But if God is the author of Scripture, then we, w- we shouldn't expect there to be apparent discrepancies in what God is saying throughout Scripture. I guess my initial reaction to this is God seems to have sort of providentially ordered the world so that Scripture would be written, but through the ordinary human means by which documents are written. Uh, and so... For that reason, we can look at it as having that kind of human component. I mean, this is this is a common claim that you hear from theologians and stuff that you know, the scripture has a human side as well as a divine side and so on. But it seems like it's important that the human side involves like human methods of remembering and recalling information that, you know, because Luke, for example, talks about how he's using sources and he did research and stuff like this. And so I think that maybe that's probably the best way to go in dealing with that question. Yeah. Um, so the objection that I was bringing up sort of had the underlying assumption that if God is inspiring scripture, then the humans are kind of uninvolved in a sense. They're like empty vessels through which God is, is, uh, working, but yeah. we, that's not how we really think about. Right. Yeah. It's not a divine dictation. Yeah. Okay, good. Now, Having made this point about how discrepancies in the gospel narratives are, sorry, apparent discrepancies in the gospel narratives might actually be taken to be evidence in their favor, it's still valuable if we can show that the apparent discrepancies are merely apparent, that they can be plausibly harmonized. And that's valuable for a number of reasons. You might have theological reasons for being interested in whether that's true, because some versions of the of the doctrine of inspiration imply that there are no errors in scripture. Uh, But also, if you can show that the apparent discrepancies are merely apparent, then that blocks an argument that the gospel authors are making even little mistakes. And that makes them look like even better historians, as has often been observed. For that reason, it's valuable that we examine some of these alleged discrepancies in the gospel narratives and, and consider like whether these can really be ironed out. Today, the material that I'm going to be going over comes from a variety of sources, as it usually does, but I wanted to highlight one of the main sources I'm using because 
It's a really fun little book that I highly recommend called Easter Enigma by John Wenham. And this book is a harmony of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. He basically just goes through the four Gospels and looks at what they all say about what happened at Easter and floats uh, a hypothesis about how to fit them all together and sort of iron out any apparent discrepancies and so on. A lot of the material I'll be talking about today is drawn from this book, and then some of it is also drawn from elsewhere. In particular, I'm always using lots of material from Tim and Lydia McGrew uh, and other people as well. Okay, so let's dive into some specific apparent or alleged contradictions in the gospel narratives. Here's a common one. Here's one you hear about all the time. All four of the Gospels tell us that certain women among Jesus' followers went to the tomb on Easter morning and found it empty. But if you actually lay them out side by side and compare what they say about these women going to the tomb, you start to notice what look like look to be little differences between them. And one of these differences is that they don't uh, list the same women. When they tell you who went to the tomb, they don't uh, seem to agree about the answer to that question. So Matthew says it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary is how he describes her companion. But Mark says it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and then this other person named Salome. Luke says it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joanna, and then he adds, and others with them. And John only mentions Mary Magdalene. So what are we going to do about this? Is this a contradiction? Are they disagreeing with each other about who went to the tomb? Well, that's, of course, a possible explanation. But here's another possible explanation, and this one is sort of the standard harmonization from what I can tell. It could be that what's going on here is that each gospel author is simply taking one or two or three of the women and naming them as representative of this larger group of women that went to the tomb on Easter morning. So that all of the women that are mentioned by any one of the gospel authors as having gone to the tomb did go to the tomb, but no one gospel author uh, names each one of them. This is kind of the standard sort of harmonization hypothesis. And um, different suggestions have been offered as to why it is that each author chooses to mention or name the women that he does and leave out the others. So, for example, I think it was Richard Bauckham who suggested that uh, when Mark was writing, Salome was maybe well known in the early Christian community, but that by the time the other gospel authors wrote, she had uh, become less well known. And so they omitted that name. Anyway, so you get the idea. Uh, it could be that all these women went to the tomb, and it's just that each gospel author is choosing certain ones to name and certain ones not to name. Um, so <coughs> there are, importantly, some things that can be said on behalf of this hypothesis. One author, Luke, is actually explicit about the fact that there are other women going to the tomb besides the ones that he names. So if you look at Luke chapter 24, verse 10, Luke writes, It was Mary Magdalene... Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. And that, that's them reporting about the empty tomb. So he says the others with them. So he's explicit about the fact that there were more there than the ones that he named. 
Now, you might say, well, but what about Matthew, Mark, and John? You know, why don't they say that there were others there besides the ones they named? So it's true that they don't actually say, come out and tell you that there were others there besides the ones they named. But that could just be because they thought that that was a detail that didn't need to be mentioned. And there is some evidence for that, too, in the Gospel of John. So let me read to you the first few verses of John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. John writes, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Okay, did you notice that in that last uh, verse there, when John quotes Mary Magdalene, all of a sudden she uses the plural, and she says that we don't know where they've put the body. Now, John writes that whole paragraph as if only Mary Magdalene is there. He never mentions anyone else with her. He's just talking about what Mary Magdalene did. But all of a sudden, we get this hint just in passing that Mary Magdalene maybe wasn't alone because she uses the plural. And so that's a hint that John uh, John knew or recognized or acknowledged the fact that there were other women with her besides those that he names, even though he doesn't name anyone else and doesn't even say that there were others that he's not naming. And I think that in light of that fact, it's not at all implausible to extend the same hypothesis to cover Matthew and Luke. I also think that this counts as an undesigned coincidence between the synoptics and John. Because on the one hand, we have this little passing detail, the plural that Mary uses, that makes it sound like, oh, maybe there were other people with her. Wonder who they were. But John never gives you any hint as to like who those people might have been. The synoptics don't report this this saying of Mary when she comes back and says, we don't know where they've taken the body. But they do happen to tell us that Mary Magdalene was with other people when they went to the tomb. So we have a nice little subtle explanatory connection here between John and the synoptics. Doesn't look like it was planned. It's the sort of unplanned, neat little um, connection that is more likely to result from accurate reporting than people just sort of making stuff up. All right, one more comment about this who went to the tomb question. Uh, it actually fits this hypothesis that um, all of these women went to the tomb and each of the authors is just naming some of them actually fits a broader pattern in the Gospels. This is something that's been noticed by Lydia McGrew based partly on uh, some observations that Richard Baucom has also made. Uh, you actually, if you look throughout the Gospels, you have uh, a number of passages where certain women who are among Jesus' followers are named. And they include these passages about who went to the tomb on Easter morning, but there are similar passages like that about which women were standing by during the crucifixion, which women observed the burial. And then there's a passage in Luke 8 where he just kind of pauses and says, oh, and here were some wealthy women who were supporting Jesus and his male disciples while they were you know, working in Galilee. And what's interesting about this is, you know, at first, it's not immediately obvious that this is the same group of women being named over and over again, because the list of names tends to be different from one passage to the next. 
But you look a little closer and you find that some names occur over and over again. And there are a number of these passages that indicate that these women are from Galilee and had been following Jesus in Galilee and then came with him to Jerusalem. Uh, and they're always women who are among Jesus' immediate followers. And so it starts to look like maybe this is just the same group of women, these women who were part of Jesus' entourage, being mentioned over and over and over again. And for various reasons, uh, authors you know, pick out just certain ones to name on each occasion. Um, and uh, so there's a sense in which this hypothesis about the resur- uh, resurrection narratives fits a broader pattern in the Gospels. Moreover, that pattern is itself an independent piece of positive evidence for the trustworthiness of the Gospels. Lydia McGrew calls it an undesigned coincidence. Um, I think uh, Patrick once suggested that undesigned coincidences of this sort might be better cast as a type of coherence. But at any rate, what we've got here is a subtle pattern, a pattern that spans different parts of different Gospels that doesn't look like it was planned. It just sort of happened on its own. And that's more likely to occur uh, if the gospel authors are just reporting the facts and not if they're just making stuff up. Why would it be if they were just making stuff up that things would just sort of naturally fit together in ways that they weren't even, you know, planning? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think that actually this uh, apparent discrepancy about who went to the tomb is easily resolved. And there's a lot of good evidence for the resolution that has been traditional. Let's consider a different discrepancy. So Mark and Luke appear to disagree about when the women who went to the tomb acquired the spices that they were going to bring with them to treat the body. Mark makes it sound like they go and buy those spices after the Sabbath is over. So that would mean either Saturday evening or Sunday morning before they go to the tomb. Uh, This is in Mark 16, verse 1. Mark writes, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So that makes it sound like, okay, they wait out the Sabbath, then they buy some spices. But if you look at Luke chapter 23, verses 55 to 56, we get a different story. Luke writes, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Okay, now Luke certainly makes it sound like the women go home on Friday night and prepare the spices right away and then wait out the Sabbath. So what's going on here? Did the women prepare the spices before the Sabbath or after the Sabbath? John Wenham has a really interesting suggestion about how to deal with this apparent discrepancy. He reminds us that Joanna in particular, who only features in Luke's gospel, uh, is associated with Herod's household. We learn that in Luke chapter 8. And so he makes the suggestion that some of these women at the very least Joanna, though he thinks at least one other as well, would have spent the Sabbath in the Hasmonean Palace, which is where Herod would have been hanging out in Jerusalem, whereas the other women would have gone and hid out in some house in the city. They wouldn't have been, at any rate, they wouldn't have been staying in the palace. They didn't have connections with Herod. 
And so Wenham thinks like, look, there's reason to think that these women who met at the tomb on Sunday morning didn't spend the Sabbath in the same place. And if some of them were in the palace, there may have already been spices on hand there that they could immediately start preparing. It's a palace. They probably got all kinds of stuff laying around. Whereas the women who were went off and, and hid in, in some house, maybe wherever Peter and the beloved disciple were hiding out, uh, maybe they didn't have spices readily on hand and so had to go buy some when the Sabbath was over. And moreover, Wenham thinks that this suggestion fits really nicely with um, traditional hypotheses about the sources that Luke and Mark are using. Traditionally, Mark's main source is Peter. So Mark is more likely to be writing from the perspective of the women who went and hid out in wherever Peter and John were hiding out in the city. Whereas Bauckham thinks that Luke used some of the women as his sources, and Wenham suggests that Joanna might have been one of his sources. So he might be writing from the perspective of the women who went and stayed in the Hasmonean Palace, and so tells kind of their side of the story about what went on during the Sabbath. So that's Wenham's hypothesis for how to deal with this apparent discrepancy about the spices. <clears throat> Looking at the Greek, the comment about the Sabbath is almost like a a side comment at the end. It's like, oh, and yeah, by the way, they rest on the Sabbath. The, t- the timing of those two things doesn't seem to be clearly differentiated. Yeah, so one way you can read it is take verse 54. So this is Luke 23, verse 54, through the first half of verse 56. Mm-hmm. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Mm-hmm. The Sabbath is already starting. The women who had come with them from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then, so maybe on one interpretation, after the Sabbath, they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And then, as an aside, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Uh, so that nice. that would be a way of reading what's going on in Luke that's consistent with what's said. That's not, it doesn't require Wenham's story, which I think is a cool and interesting story, but yeah, uh, but it's not. I think, I think there's a good syntactical argument for that. I think you're right. All right, cool. So we have at least two harmonizations of that <laughs> particular <laughs> discrepancy. Um, here's another apparent discrepancy. Uh, when did the women go to the tomb? Matthew says at dawn. Mark says just after sunrise. Luke says very early in the morning. John says while it was still dark. Now, Wenham says a couple of things about this. The first is that it's not really obvious that there is a discrepancy or even an apparent discrepancy here because the terminology that's being used is vague, right? There are times, uh, you know, in the morning when one person might say it's dark and another person might say it's light and, and things like that. So it's not really clear that there is a problem here. But... If a critic really wanted to press this point, I think their best bet would be to argue that Mark and John are in conflict here because Mark seems to say the sun is up. John seems to say it's still dark. And if a critic really wanted to press that, Wenham has another hypothesis for how to deal with this. He suggests that some of the women might have gone out to Bethany on Saturday night. Now, first, let me say why this would help. Then I'll explain why he thinks that might have happened. Why would this help? Well, suppose after the Sabbath, some of the women hike out to Bethany. Bethany was a little village kind of on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Well, then in the morning on Sunday, some of the women would have to set out early enough 
to travel back from Bethany into the city to meet the other women so that they could then all walk out to the tomb. And if that's the case, then some of the women would be getting up earlier, maybe while it's still dark. But then once they meet up with the other women and they set out together to the tomb, maybe by that time the sun is up. So that that would be a way of solving the discrepancy. Now, why think that some of the women on Saturday night might have gone out to Bethany? Well, here's Wenham's thought about this. Where in all of this are Jesus' male disciples? Aside from Peter and the beloved disciple, we haven't seen them since we were told that they (laughs) fled in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where are they? Well, Wenham thinks it's really plausible that where they would have gone was Bethany. Why well, think that? Well, one for one reason, that's where Jesus has been staying all week. He has, uh, while he's in Jerusalem for Passover, he spends the nights in Bethany. So that's presumably where they've been staying too. Mm. And secondly, Bethany is safer than being in the city once your rabbi has been arrested for sedition because it keeps them, you know, out outside of where all the authorities are, the Roman and Jewish authorities. Moreover, Gethsemane is halfway to Bethany already. So once they're out in Gethsemane, they're outside of the city and they're halfway to Bethany. So it's just a very natural place for them to go and hide out. But by the time the Sabbath ends, they have now been hunkered down in Bethany, not knowing what's going on in the city. In the meantime, the rest of Jesus' followers, the women, Peter, the beloved disciple, Cleopas, whoever else is in the city, they know what's happened to Jesus because they've been there. So they've seen Jesus' trial. They saw that he was condemned to crucifixion. He was killed. He was buried. So by the, And then the Sabbath hits, at which point nobody can go anywhere. So by the end of the Sabbath, Wenham thinks, look, the two different separated groups of Jesus' disciples at this point are going to be itching to get back in contact with each other. But the ones hiding out in Bethany are hiding out for a reason. So it's more likely that the ones in the city are going to go out and reach out to the ones in Bethany than that the ones in Bethany are going to try to venture into the city. So he thinks there's reason to think that some of the people, some of Jesus' disciples in the city would have gone out to Bethany as soon as they could on Saturday evening. And so long as we hypothesize that Mary Magdalene was one of them, That um, will explain why John says it was dark when Mary Magdalene set out. He also has a a specific reason for thinking that Mary Magdalene in particular would want to head out to Bethany, but I don't want to get into that. I don't know if it helps point out that, but Bethany is less, is about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. So it wasn't, this wasn't a, yeah, they're just just down the street, basically. Yes, Uh, it's not far. It's not far. Okay. Was the tomb open? When the women arrived. Here the problem, the problem child is Matthew. Uh, Mark, Luke, and John all seem to agree that the women show up at the tomb and find it already open and empty. But Matthew seems to tell a slightly different story. So let me read for you the beginning of Matthew chapter 28. Starting at verse 1, Matthew writes, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, And the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here. 
He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And so forth. Okay, so it looks like in Matthew's story, the women show up to the tomb and then an angel comes down and busts it open and causes an earthquake or something like this. Um, But you get no hint of that in Mark, Luke, and John. You just have them arriving at the tomb and looking and seeing, oh, it's open and there's no body there. What's going on? Okay, so from what I can tell, the usual approach to this discrepancy is basically just to say that Matthew is not telling you all of this in precisely chronological order. I'm just looking at the, with egoneto, the verb of, of like, it happened. I'm thinking that is specifically not giving you a, a point in time. Like, it's just telling you that this thing had happened at some point, but is not specifying when, and that's kind of the, the point. Um, and the sort of the flexibility of the aorist tense is, is just giving you this aspect that this, this thing happened. It happened um, that there was an earthquake. Yeah, yeah so I think yeah. in the English it can tend to sound like... This is what happened next. Yeah, but, yeah. then it happened. Yeah. But, but the way that the Greek reads is just, it, it had happened at some point. Yeah. Um, and so it's much more ambiguous as It's to the, the same thing. So, so what you're talking about is it happened that there was a great earthquake. And then in the next sentence, it's the same verbs for sitting on the stone and rolling back the stone for an angel of the Lord had come from heaven and and rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. So in each case, it's, it's a verb that's not really giving you a sense of chronology. chronology. Yeah. 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 And I think Tim McGrew also makes the point that it's possible. It's not necessary, but it's possible to read the tenses. An angel of the Lord had come down. It is possible to read that way, mm-hmm. that an angel of the Lord uh, had come down and an angel of the Lord had rolled back the stone would yeah. be a uh, possible translation. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So who did the women see at the tomb? Here's one you hear a lot, or at least I've heard it a lot. Uh, the trouble is, or at least the apparent trouble is that, so in Matthew, we just saw that the women encounter an angel of the Lord who speaks to them. But in Mark, it's a man who speaks to them at the tomb. In Luke, it's two men. And in John, it's two angels. What's going on here? Uh, Well, the man-angel thing turns out to be really easy to resolve because this is actually a pattern in Scripture. Angels uh, in Scripture look like men, and they're often called men, presumably because they look like men. That's just... (laughs) A, a general pattern, th- you know, throughout the Bible. So there's no problem here with the fact that some of the gospel authors are calling them angels and some of them are calling them men dressed in white. That's just the or that's standard for how it goes with angels in the Bible. Now, as far as the one versus two, this is a problem we've encountered in other cases in the Gospels, where you'll have one author who mentions one person in a certain story and another author who mentions that there were actually two people. And the same kind of standard solution is applied in all these cases. It's very easy, you know, to imagine that, you know, one of these two individuals was in some way more important to the story, stood out more, was more memorable. And so some authors decided not to mention the second 
individual and other authors decided, well, why not? There was a second individual. And so you just get a difference like that. Um, in this case, the usual suggestion is that it looks like only one of the angels actually spoke. And so maybe some authors have decided only to mention the angel that spoke, whereas the one that was just standing there not doing anything, why did they need to mention that? It wasn't really important, they might have thought. So that turns out, I think, to be an easy resolution. There's also a really cool undesigned coincidence involving the angels at the tomb that um, I learned it from William Lane Craig in one of his podcasts. I don't know. He might be getting it from somebody else, and he doesn't actually call it an undesigned coincidence, but I think it is one. Um, So if you look at Mark 16, uh, it's interesting how the angel is described. Um, So in verse 5, 16 verses 5 and 6, Mark writes, as they, the women, entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. So what what Craig points out is it looks like... um, you can get some clues about how the tomb was structured from this passage. So the women walk into the tomb and then the angel is described standing on the right side and then sort of apparently like gesturing or something towards where the body lay, like look where the body lay. Um, And, and anyway, long story short, Craig thinks that um, there's reason from this passage to conclude that there's a certain type of tomb that Jesus was interred in. And that's being imagined here. A sort of tomb where the body would be laid out as though on display on some kind of a bench or a pedestal. There are a couple of different kinds of tombs that this could have been. But either one, what's interesting about this is that either sort of tomb that it could have been would have been the sort of tomb that only wealthy individuals had. And that's interesting because Matthew tells us that the person who buried Jesus um, and used his own tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, was a wealthy individual. He says in Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 57, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And then it describes how he buries the body. So I think that's kind of a neat little undesigned coincidence between Matthew and Luke about the the tomb and the angel and so on. How about, did the women tell anyone what they had seen and what the angel had told them? This is another problem some people like to press, and this one has mostly to do with Mark. So if you look at Mark chapter 16, verse 8, Mark writes, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Okay, now here's the, here's the problem here. The other Gospels tell us that the women went back and, and shared what they had found. Mark, though, tells us that they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And it's important to note that that verse, Mark 16, verse 8, is the last verse we have from the original Gospel of Mark. Most Bibles will include verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16. But that passage is not, almost certainly not part of the original Gospel of Mark. It's something that got added later by some scribe. 
Uh, now, there's disagreement about whether Mark originally ended at 16.8 or whether there's another ending of Mark that was at some point lost. Um, that doesn't really matter so much for our purposes. I just want to point out that we can't take anything from verses 9 through 20 as evidence. Well, maybe that's too strong, but we have to be careful about how we use verses 9 through 20 as evidence for trying to resolve this apparent contradiction. Some people think that Mark actually literally originally ended with the women saying nothing to anyone. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, so what do we do about this? Well, here again, there's kind of a standard solution, and I think this is actually a pretty straightforward one. So sometimes people call these sorts of statements universal negatives, where you say like nothing did such, you know, nothing was such and such, or no one did such and such or whatever. Um, and to take an example from, uh, that I'm stealing from a philosopher named Dan Corman. Uh, it, it turns out these are really, really ambiguous kinds of statements because they can take different scope in different contexts. So suppose, here's Corman's example, suppose I'm standing in front of the refrigerator and I've got the refrigerator door open and I say, there's no beer. Presumably what I mean is there's no beer in the refrigerator. But you can imagine other contexts in which I utter that same sentence, there's no beer, and mean other things. Like, there's no, no beer <laughs> There's no beer in the store, or there's no beer in the whole country, or there's no beer in the whole universe, or something like that. Okay, so we have to t- take account of the fact that these, like, universal negatives are, are very, very context-dependent in terms of what scope they take, and in that sense, very ambiguous. And so... The traditional move, as far as I can tell here, is just to say, well, when he says they, they said nothing to anyone, that's got a tacit scope restriction on it. And so it could be that what he meant was something like they didn't say anything to anyone on their way to tell the disciples, as the angel had instructed them. Or they didn't say anything to anyone outside of Jesus' immediate followers or something like that. Or these are in the immediate area or, around where they were in the yeah, tomb is. Right, yeah. So these are the sorts of suggestions that you hear people Making And Tim McGrew actually adds this point, that it's actually characteristic of Mark to make like a general claim, like a sweeping claim, and then immediately add a qualification, like an exception of some kind. And so he suggests, look, if we're missing the original ending of Mark, it could be that the very next verse was one that added a qualification of sorts, because it would just be in keeping with Mark's writing style. Okay, so I don't think that that's a really alarming discrepancy at all. Here's a little bit of a tougher one. There seems to be a chronological disagreement between John and the synoptics. In the synoptics, you have the women going out to the tomb, finding it empty, encountering the angel. The angel tells them, go and tell um, the male disciples that Jesus is risen. So they head off to tell the male disciples, and on their way to do that, Jesus appears to them. And then, presumably, they eventually get in contact with the other disciples. But John seems to have a totally different chronology. John has, and remember, he only mentions Mary Magdalene. He has Mary Magdalene going out to the tomb, noticing that it's empty, and immediately turning around and running back and telling Peter and the beloved disciple that the tomb is empty and they don't know where they're taking the body. Then Peter and the beloved disciple go to the tomb, see that it's empty, and Mary follows them back. They leave, she hangs around, sees the angels at that point for the first time, apparently, and then Jesus appears to her. So what's going on here? The the order of events seems to be different from John to the synoptics. 
Okay. Well, once again, there is a sort of a traditional, I think at any rate, traditional resolution to this problem. And it's the one that Wenham endorses and also the one Tim McGrew endorses. The whole problem only gets off the ground if you make a certain assumption, a natural assumption, admittedly, that Mary Magdalene stayed with the other women throughout the entire process. But if you abandon that assumption, you can explain why there are these differences between John and the synoptics. So here's Wenham's story. Wenham suggests that as soon as the women arrive at the tomb and see that it's empty, Mary Magdalene immediately concludes that, oh, something's gone wrong here, uh, you know, maybe the body's stolen, runs back and uh, tells Peter and the beloved disciple that, you know, the tomb is empty, the body's gone, leaving the other women at the tomb. It's at that point that the other women go into the tomb, look around, the angel speaks to them, and meanwhile, Mary Magdalene and John and the beloved disciple are on their way to see the tomb, but by the time they get there, the other the other women have been sent away by the angel to go tell you know, the, the other disciples about what has happened. So John and Peter get there and the angels, uh, Wenham says, you know, don't make themselves visible for them. But then they appear again after John, or sorry, after Peter and the beloved disciple leave um, so that Mary sees them. And then at that point, Jesus appears to Mary. So uh, Wenham seems to be, well, he's, he's imagining the angels sort of selectively appearing to some people and not others. And I don't know if he, I don't remember he make, him making this point, but you might think, well, that's kind of similar to what Jesus is doing too. Jesus is initially just sort of selecting, selectively appearing to certain people and not others. Um, but mainly the hypothesis hinges on this idea that Mary Magdalene breaks away from the rest of the group as soon as they notice the empty tomb. And that is just a speculative suggestion, though it does some explanatory work. It explains why we have this difference between John and the Gospels. And I would Tim, say it's more than a speculative suggestion because it's what John says, right? There's a sense in which you might call it speculative, but there's also another sense in which you might just say it. it's just, just take, it's just taking what they say and then putting yeah. them together, yeah. and then there's and an turns, obvious story. Yeah, it, it fits. Yeah, and no it problem. fits. Right. <laughs> so. And I also like what Tim McGrew says uh, about this. It's sort of rhetorical, but nevertheless, I think he makes a good point. He says, people in the real world are not chess pieces waiting for their turn to move. They react to circumstances, sometimes by leaving groups that they were originally a part of. We need to interpret the Gospels in light of what we know about people in the real world. If that knowledge affords us a simple way to harmonize the accounts, it is unreasonable to insist that they contradict one another. One other issue that I suppose I should mention about that story, um, it does also require a hypothesis that Wenham works out in the book, and you can look at how he does this. Um, it requires that the women uh, who stay and see the angels initially and then are sent away take a different route through the city than Mary Magdalene does when she runs to get um, James and Peter so that they don't run across each other in the meantime. They don't encounter each other. Um, and I, he's got a, a story about how he thinks that went, and I just recommend look at his book for that. All right, one more alleged discrepancy. Some people complain about the, the appearances of Jesus in the resurrection narratives. And here the trouble is that if you compare the Gospels to each other, there isn't a lot of overlap 
in terms of like who did Jesus appear to and when and in what circumstances. In Matthew, there's an appearance to the women as they return from the tomb and also to the disciples on a hill in Galilee. In Mark, there are no appearances, assuming that verses 9 through 20 are not original. There might have been some appearances if the original ending has been lost. Some people even think that the original ending of Mark is at least summarized in some form in Matthew 28. Um, But anyway, in Luke, you get an appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, an appearance to the 11 in Jerusalem, and then an appearance at the Ascension. In John, you get an appearance to Mary by the tomb. You get an appearance to the 11 minus Thomas on Sunday evening and an appearance to the 11, including Thomas, a week later. And then in John's epilogue, chapter 21, an appearance by the sea. But as other people have pointed out, and I think this is fairly obvious, there isn't really a disagreement here. What you have is just different authors selecting different appearances to narrate. They aren't disagreeing about who Jesus appeared to and when. They're just picking different appearances to to highlight in some sense. These aren't like inconsistent with each other. And in fact, some of these authors are explicit about the fact that they've left stuff out, that they haven't included everything. Luke is explicit about this in Acts. Um, Whoever wrote the Gospel of Luke also wrote Acts. That's pretty widely accepted. And if you look at Acts 1-3, he's pretty clear. There's a lot of stuff that happened between the resurrection and the ascension that he's not telling us about. John's explicit about it right before his epilogue, right? Yes, actually in two places. John 20, verse 30, which is what you were thinking of, I think. Mm -hmm. And also at the end of the epilogue, John 21, verse 25, John is explicit that he's left a bunch of stuff out. So those are uh, some hints that, like, you know, this selection hypothesis, this makes sense. This is what they were doing. They were all just sort of picking different things to talk about and leaving other things out. Um. And then Tim McGrew highlights a couple of other points that are interesting. The missing ending of Mark, right? There might be more overlap if we had the original ending of Mark. Maybe Mark did narrate some of the things that show up in the other Gospels. We also have, um, he thinks that uh, Luke and Matthew may have been running out of scroll. And because he says, look, they're about scroll length. And if you look at the end of both of them, they're trying to cram a whole bunch of stuff like really fast in the last... (laughs) you know, a few paragraphs. And so maybe they were running out of room and they had to leave a bunch of stuff out. Anyway, um, so I don't think that this is a problem. And also, and regrettably, we don't have time to go into this, but I think there's a lot of evidence from particular details in each of the, well, in, you know, many of the particular resurrection appearances that counts in favor of their historical accuracy. There are uh, undesigned coincidences that are scattered throughout them, especially there's a bunch of them in John's epilogue. Uh, there are cases, things that satisfy the criterion of embarrassment. I think we did get to mention some of those last week um, and so forth. So there's a lot of great evidence here uh, that can be brought forth in favor of the historicity of the various specific appearances. But I think that we've done enough <laughs> for one episode. Great. Well, we're glad you could join us today for the Mercy House University podcast. And that's episode three under wraps. So we're really enjoying recording these. And we're wondering if anybody might have any questions to send our way. If you do, we have an email address that we've set up. It's mercyhouseu at gmail.com. That's mercyhouse, the letter U, at gmail.com. So if you're listening through these and you have anything that 
you're wondering about and you'd like to hear us talk about on the podcast, we'd be happy to do it. So uh, send an email our way and uh, let us know what you're thinking. And if you also want to just leave a review on iTunes or Spotify and ask us any questions there, that's another thing you could do too. So we'll have another episode up in a couple weeks. And come uh, Holy Week in April, we're planning on having a training event at church on what's called Maundy Thursday, the day before Good Friday. So at that event, we'll be kind of digging into how do you talk to non-believers about the resurrection? And uh, so hopefully some of you who are listening through this will be able to come to that and benefit from that. But regardless, we'll see you next time on the Mercy House University podcast.